Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch um, and Dispatch Media, Dispatch.com. You've heard all that stuff already. Go check it out for um, all sorts of exclusive material to sign up for free newsletters, to sign up for full membership, um, to get basically the Quan. Do whatever you want. But um, I'm here. I, if I sound awkward, it's because I still feel awkward. Uh, this is, I guess, my friend Michael Graham said that the podcast should actually be called Welcome to the Smoking Car um, because of last week's episode where I was smoking in a church parking lot um, recording this thing. Now I am recording on a roof, um, on the rooftop of a parking garage um, near a pharmacy where I have to pick up some prescriptions. And uh, I figured I would just get this done here. I just sent off a draft of the G file, which I had to file late because it's been a crazy day. I recorded an epic length 200th episode of The Remnant with Congressman Mike Gallagher a little while ago. And I've had all sorts of technical issues. And of course, there were the chuds, but that's another story. So anyway, I'm here. It's late. I'm approaching cocktail hour. The president is about to give another press conference. Um, my understanding is at this press conference, he will explain that if the witch stays at the top of the water, um, she's guilty. And if she sinks to the bottom, she is innocent. Um, I, I know people get sick about it, the Trump stuff, but, uh, as I write at the end of the G file today, um, the floating of injecting disinfectant really was a new high watermark in the tales of Trumpism. And it was really sort of remarkable. Um, and I think that it's the kind of thing, you know, it's, we hear all the time about how, Oh, you know, he could shoot people in fifth Avenue and still think he can't, but it's not as outlandish as we once thought. Um, but this idea of, um, it wasn't so much that he floated. It wasn't I mean, the fact that he floated the idea of maybe injecting disinfectant or using some kind of, you know, special UV light flashlight inside someone's body um, was more telling than a lot of things. You know, he often can freelance stuff that he doesn't know about. And it sounds like you could maybe figure out beneath the surface that he, he's just not articulating it well. But the, the the really astounding and I think damning thing about this, other than the gross irresponsibility of it on the surface, is that he 
seemed legitimately surprised that sunlight and um, disinfectant worked this way on the virus. This is something we always knew. The new information was about the rapidity of the half-life, essentially. But, you know, in his follow-up sort of attempt to walk back things by saying he was just being sarcastic, you know, he says stuff like, I guess this is why people said to use disinfectant on your hands or to wash your hands, as if there was another explanation for why you would do that. I mean, I get really frustrated. One of my abiding criticisms of politicians is um, when they won't do their homework. The easiest thing in the world, and when I say easy, I don't mean easy in the sense that um, it doesn't take work. Um, I mean, easy in the sense that all the all the things that you have to do are in front of you is your homework. You know, um, get some researchers to put together some files for you and write some memos for you. And you you do your homework. You do your due diligence. You read up on what you need to know about. The hardest thing in politics is something that you can't buy. It's this charismatic connection with voters or at least some voters Um and that's something you can't, you know, you, if, if Mitt Romney could have bought that, he would have bought it pretty early in his political career. You can't buy it. It's something that you have. You can learn to be a better politician or a worse politician. But to have that sort of connection with voters is um, not a matter of doing your homework or expertise. If, if it were at this point, Ted Cruz would have it. Mitch Daniels would have it. Lots of people would have it. They don't. It is something... You know, there's something special, magical, you know, indescribable about it. Sarah Palin had it, but she wouldn't do her homework. She wouldn't just simply do her due diligence. Um, and I find that, you know, and lots of people have that problem. Um, and, I, I, and I've written columns about this in the past. This is not specifically about Trump, this, this point. I've been writing about this for years. But I think there is something f- sort of fundamentally unethical, immoral, unpatriotic about politicians not doing the, the, the basic work of, of knowing what they're talking about when they're in positions of power. It is a violation of the public trust to um, constantly wing it. And Trump, I think everybody knows, has been winging it from... Uh, the get-go, and it's worked for him. And that's, you know, great, whatever. I mean, you know I have my criticisms. But I would like to think, look, I wing things a lot too. I'm, you know, I'm the guy who did my homework on the bus to school. I'm a quick study. I don't do a lot of prep for TV shows and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. I don't do any prep for this thing. But, so, I mean, I get that impulse. But I'm not a senator. I'm not a politician. I'm not a congressman. I'm not a governor. I'm not a president. Um, and when the stakes are high, I would like to think that I would buckle down and do the homework. I do the homework when I write books. I do the homework when we were starting the dispatch because I have an obligation to understand the details in a way. And I would like to think that if I were in a position of having become president of the United States by winging it, um, that if we were facing this kind of pandemic, um, this kind of grave crisis where, you know, I don't know how far we we are, but it's not far from 50,000 dead Americans and what will look like 
um, an economic depression, I would think, okay, look, this is not for screwing around anymore. This isn't coming up with silly nicknames for people. Um, this, is, you know, this is literally life and death stuff. And for him not to really know and comprehend in a way that he could process information about how viruses affect, are affected by disinfectant and sunlight, and to think that somehow this was this breakthrough realization that somehow COVID-19, unlike the influenza virus and any other coronavirus um, out there, was somehow uniquely susceptible to ultraviolet light or disinfectant to the point where this could be a cure. Um, at the very minimum, you thought he would have brought this up in private in a meeting if he had this idea, which, again, is an incandescently stupid idea. Um, you know, the influenza virus is, is also susceptible to sunlight and fresh air and all of these kinds of things, and no one has thought of giving people ultraviolet flashlight enemas or any of that kind of stuff. No one says to get rid of the flu, you know, drink bleach. But he clearly just hasn't done any reading on this so that he thought that this was some great new insight that the doctors hadn't figured out. And my theory about this is that, and I have no proof for it really, just sort of reading the transcripts and watching that thing yesterday, is my hunch, and I read about this in the G-File, my hunch is, is that, he probably did bring this up. He probably didn't understand the significance of what this new study was. And he probably said something along the lines of what he said up there. You know, could we use this as a treatment? Is there a way to do this internally? Can we inject it or whatever? And the problem is, is that the people around him who are so battered and so shell-shocked um, that they have internalized this assumption, which I think is the correct assumption, that you're... You, you can't dismiss something he says out of hand. You have to be diplomatic. You can't say, oh, that's stupid. You have to say something diplomatic. And my hunch is that, that Dr. Burks or somebody else said something like, oh, I've never heard of that being tried. Or um, I'm not aware of that being used as a treatment. As a sort of polite way of saying, that's a dumb idea. But what he took away from it was, um, aha, I've stumbled on something that these fancy pants experts hadn't thought of, and he freelanced it out there. And we know he doesn't go to a lot of briefings um, for this stuff. The Maggie Haberman piece uh, talks about how he usually skips the meeting right before and then gets a quick briefing um, on the fly. He reads his statement um, on the fly, makes a couple quick notes about it, and then reads it dispassionately and bloodlessly from the podium so we can get to the fun stuff, which is the rally substitute Q&A. And I just think that's a, it's, it's, I know we're all supposed to make special allowances and all of these kinds of things. And people who are unconvinced from this stuff don't want to hear it anymore. But that is just a, a massively unethical and really immoral violation of your responsibilities as the president of the United States is to just wing this stuff. And, um, I guess this gets me to, so uh, my friend Charlie Cook on the, the other day, I got into a little contretemps with him and uh, Guy Benson, who's also a friend of mine, and I have nothing but respect for both of them, and this is just a genuine disagreement, um, as I said on Twitter, but um, Charlie and Guy were complaining about how it was sort of outrageous and grotesque for 
the media to seem like they were elated or excited or hopeful that hydroxychloroquine wouldn't work and had and turns out looks looks like it doesn't work and i agree with them i think it's gross and i one of the things i absolutely hate about this whole situation is that feeling that you get of at least some part of your brain hoping for some bad outcome because it'll be inconvenient to your political opponents i've written about this for years about this this gr- the grotesquerie of these mass shootings where there's this brief sort of bated breath pause where the protagonists on either side of basically blue checkmark Twitter wait to see whether it was someone, quote unquote, from their team or the other team who committed these mass murders so that you can then use the bloodshed and the, the misery as a partisan weapon against the other side. So, oh gosh, I hope it's a Muslim terrorist or I hope it's a, you know, a, a, a fanatical pro-lifer. Um, you know, you see this after the, the, the baseball game shooting with Congress. It happened all the time and it's grotesque on either side, but it's kind of, it's a natural human response. Um, and it's something that you should be aware of that it happens in you and you should beat it back at every opportunity because it's grotesquely immoral. Um, you shouldn't be trying to, you, you shouldn't be like hopeful that that kind of human suffering uh, is convenient for your political arguments, but it is a natural feeling to have. And there's something similar going on here with the way we talk about death rates and infection rates and more and mortality rate and all this kind of stuff that, you know, oh gosh, now this makes Richard Epstein look foolish or Sean Hannity look foolish or, oh my gosh, this proves Trump was right about something and blah, 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 blah. You should just simply hope for the best possible outcomes. And it would have been great if Trump happened to be right about hydrochloroquine. Um, But where I disagree with Charlie and I disagree with Guy is how culpable Trump was in all of this. I'm not trying to excuse the media at all for any examples of them sort of celebrating or seeming to celebrate the fact that this thing didn't work. But, you know, th- th- there's this tendency, as, as Ramesh once put it, that to treat Trump as the independent variable and all reactions to him are the responsibility of the other actors. And so this came up with like the um, how the argument that a bunch of people floated that impeachment distracted Trump from dealing with the coronavirus. Um, Henry Olson made this argument. Rich Lowry made this argument. Um, a couple other people made it. I can't remember who. And I'm perfectly willing to concede that it probably did distract him from it. But that kind of, but so what? I mean, how is that an argument in defense of Donald Trump, per se, unless you think he did absolutely nothing wrong to invite his impeachment? Unless you actually believe that, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, who opposed impeaching Trump for a year, had no new information to work from, no good reason, no understandable reason for changing her mind, right? Right. Trump did things. The day after the the Mueller probe wound down, he got on the phone and threatened Ukraine. He does things that invite responses. And what drives me crazy is when people 
rightly criticize some of the responses because some of them are asinine without taking into account the things that Trump does that invites in almost a dialectic fashion those responses in the first place. It was grotesquely irresponsible for Trump to be touting hydrochloroquine when he knows nothing about it except a bunch of dumb stuff that someone, you know, printed out some emails to him or some websites or some donors whispered in his ear. Um, he had no place talking about it. He didn't know what he was talking about. We clearly know he doesn't know anything about the science of this stuff. Um, and he was giving people, and so like, you know, where I really disagree with Charlie is that he just says all Trump was doing was being hopeful that this thing would work. It's just not true that he was just being hopeful that this thing would work. He was um, touting its effectiveness. He was hinting that it was some sort of miracle cure. He was doing a snake oil job. And um, I don't blame as a human thing for people in the media to be offended by it and to feel like, aha, we were vindicated for criticizing, criticizing him about it. I'm perfectly happy to criticize members of the media for letting that cloud the fact that we should all be disappointed that this thing didn't work out. But Trump does this kind of stuff all the time. People said, you know, when he said that the Easter um, was his target date um, for, uh, you know, opening the economy back up. Um, and then he later, you know, said, oh, that was just aspirational and blah, blah, blah. Fine. It was just aspirational. But the way he talks about things is, and this is a point that Charlie makes all the time, it's diversely interpretable to different audiences in different ways. And so if you have any self-awareness, which I'm not saying that Trump does, um, of the fact that people will take you in different ways during a pandemic where 50,000 people are dying and potentially back then hundreds of thousands of people could die, maybe you should be really, really careful about how you talk about this stuff. And, um, and he's not. He just wings it. And, um, and just because we know that about him doesn't excuse it. And it doesn't, and it doesn't really excuse some of the asinine responses from people, um, but it makes them more understandable. And my basic point is it takes two or whatever number you want to tango. He creates a lot of the conditions of asininity that we condemn, but there is this tendency to just say, oh, well, that's Trump. We judge him by a different standard and we are going to, you know, condemn everybody else for their irresponsible behavior without giving at least some credence to the fact that he invites this kind of irresponsible behavior. And it's a it's a def, it's a defining deviancy down kind of point for me. And it comes up all of the time. Um, another funny example about it was, I mean, we can, I talk about the Joel Pollack, quote unquote, fact check of what Trump did in the G file. I won't go there. Something I didn't write about was there's this guy, I think his name is David Marcus, writes for the Federalist. So the day that Trump is floating the idea that maybe we can inject, you know, disinfectant, um, uh, he writes this piece about how it turns out from according to some latest studies, which may hold up, it may be true, that Trump's off the cuff statement a couple back in March that the mortality rate of this thing might only be one or 0.1 percent has turned out to be true. And uh, Mark, I think Marcus's argument is that 
Trump was right. This proves that he actually knows more about this stuff than uh, the media gives him credit for and that the media should give him more credit for having a better grasp of how this stuff works than they claim and all this kind of stuff. And it is just such a classic example of grabbing some shiny pearl from amongst a vast trough of pig and saying, aha, see, Trump was right about something. Trump also said that the thing was going to go to zero in a couple days. He said the thing was going to disappear. He was saying it was a hoax, that um, he wasn't handling it well. Um, he did his sort of partial half-hearted China ban and then basically did nothing in February to fight this stuff. And the idea that you were going to go and pluck one ripe green leaf from the, all the word salads that he's thrown out there and say, aha, this proves he knew what he was talking about, is just just absurd. But that's sort of like the world we're in these days. Anyway, all right, so I'm going to relight my cigar because I don't want to do any more Trump bashing and I need to figure out what else I'm going to talk about. Um, so I did this piece earlier in the week about this episode of Radiolab that I watched, and, or I watched, listened to, on this drive with my family. And I think it was the first time I, I, I like Radiolab. I think it's, um, it has been, particularly when Robert Krolwich was still there, a really interesting show. I, I've often disagreed with, you know, some of the sort of, you know, uh, preening atheism of some of the episodes. Um, usually my complaint about the show is this sort of Voxian deification of science and, and technocracy that sometimes comes through. You know, it's sort of this uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson science is awesome stuff and this, this, this tendency towards let's shatter all your myths and, and, and you know, cherished sort of assumptions about the nature of the universe and just depict it as this cold, heartless place of, you know, impersonal forces and all that kind of stuff. That's normally my criticism. But this episode went another way, and it turns out I hated that a lot more than any of this kind of stuff um, that they'd done before. There's this fascinating, and I, you know, I, I don't need to regurgitate the whole thing, but, uh, you know, there was this fascinating thing where, um, I'm spacing his first names, but Feynman, the great physicist, he gave this lecture at Caltech about physics, and he, he had this sort of fun mental exercise where he said, imagine basically all human life is wiped out. What, um, what, and you can only leave behind one scrap of paper, one sort of little bit of a book that hadn't been burned in some sort of conflagration or something that contained the most information possible with the fewest words that might help a civilization restart. And he offered what he called the atomic hypothesis, which was basically, um, I'm just paraphrasing from memory, everything is made of atoms. These atoms bounce around. Um, when you squeeze them or put pressure on them, sometimes they push back and something else to that effect. And if you apply some intelligence to that, you can actually sort of, it's like a little tiny sliver of a crack or tear in the curtain of ignorance. And if you pull it open, you can see the, a whole slew of things are illuminated about how electricity works, about how gravity works, about 
um, how biology and chemistry work. And it was, you know, it was just sort of a clue to leave behind. And he extrapolates from this the importance of physics and all of these kinds of things. And I thought it was legit fascinating. And so did the producers. They thought this was a really interesting, you know, you know, uh, premise for an episode. And it was. And they went around and asked. So they said they were going to grab a whole bunch of different experts on different things and ask them what their one sentence would be. And I was really psyched as I was listening to this. I thought this would be really cool. I'd love to hear what an engineer would say or a chemist or, um, you know, a medical doctor or a biologist or, for that matter, a theologian or a priest. Um, it's a really kind of fascinating mental exercise. And instead, it was this crushingly morose, self-indulgent prattle about... Um, you know, God is a woman or God is dead or racism is very bad. I mean, all of these things that were a sort of, you know, faculty lounge, um, you know, fortune cookie BS. And it just, it was insipid. And, you know, it, I, I, I should have used as a peg for this thing, you know, Ross's book about decadence. Um, and I didn't, but it struck me as such a profound sign of the decadence of certain aspects of our elite culture that, um, and it so ties in with the theme of my book, uh, Suicide the West, about gratitude. Um, you know, the, John Rawls, the philosopher, he has this famous bit about the veil of ignorance. And it's another mental exercise. And the basic idea is, Imagine you are a non-corporeal soul um, waiting in some sort of limbo to be put into a human body. And you could be put into uh, a human body at any time in human history and in any place. And for Rawls, the idea there is to think about how you would design a society um, along those lines. So uh, Rawls's idea is that this is a way to think about how you would want to organize or design a just society. And I, I can explain in a second why that's one of my big problems with it. But, um, you know, the veil of ignorance is actually, a, it is a useful exercise. And this is a point, you know, of all people, Barack Obama made quite effectively. If you had that choice and you didn't know, oh, part of, the, part of the veil of ignorance is that you don't know if you're going to be put into a man or a woman, someone who's black or gay, uh, handicapped, rich, poor, whatever. All you know is that you're going to be put into a body. What kind of society would you want? And, you know, and Obama was right. He said, in the vast swath of human history, you would want to be put in um, a body in the United States of America around now. I mean, maybe not right this second, given all of the stuff that's going on, but, you know, maybe in the 1990s, certainly around now. And, you know, the Rawlsian point about illuminating a society is, is that it's a way of thinking about um, um, how institutions are arranged so that the society is fair to the worse off and to the best off and gives you the best opportunities to make the most of your life and have human flourishing and all the rest. 
Um, I remember Richard Epstein once did an essay where he compared it to, I think it's this guy, uh, I could have this wrong, James Harrington, who was a uh, small R Republican political theorist in England in the 16th or 1700s. I, I write about him a little bit in my book. Um, and he, he says it's sort of like the old, you know, exercise where two people have a pie and um, they have to decide how to cut it. And they come up with this thing where one guy gets to cut it, but then the other guy gets to um, pick the slice he wants. In that way, the cutter is incentivized to be as fair as possible because he's going to get the second pick. And the veil of ignorance argument is sort of like that, right? If you don't know, if you're going to end up being like um, a black guy in a wheelchair, like Garkle from 30 Rock, um, you want to design a society that is going to be minimally fair to you. And... Um, so the veil of ignorance thing um, is an important way to, th to sort of think about society. And these people have no, in this radio lab thing, have no conception about why you would pick this moment and be grateful that you got in, right? That, that being in the United States of America compared to around now, right, compared to the Ming Dynasty, I mean, sure, if you lucked out and you were um, some sort of, you know, emperor or courtier or whatever, you know, you played your cards right. But the odds of you ended up being some sort of dirt poor, illiterate peasant who dies early in life from some bowel stewing disease were really, really high. Same thing with, you know, whether it's Nazi Germany, ancient Rome, any of these kinds of things. Your downside risks were enormous for almost all of human history compared to basically a right now in the United States of America or, you know, fine Canada or whatever. And the, the, the point is, is that, you know, the, one of the main reasons why you would want to pick now is because we have antibiotics and we have running water and we have competent sewage systems and we have light bulbs and we have, you know, microwave ovens and, Corrective glasses. You know how miserable it must have been to have really bad eyesight prior to, uh, you know, what, 300 years ago? Um, we have all of these material things. And it used to be that progressives understood that material stuff was really, really important. That, you know, getting electricity for poor people was a major accomplishment. That getting them indoor plumbing was a major accomplishment and something that we should take pride in as a civilization that we accomplish these things. And instead, it was all of this navel-gazing nonsense about, you know, you know, basically campus leftism treacle. With, and to have it come from Radiolab was particularly infuriating because they're supposed to celebrate science and all of these things. And instead, it was just sort of this, what was me? Let me indulge my feelings about this or that and the other thing. And I just thought it was was a real sign of how certain elites in this country have lost sight of some of the great things about America, this sort of can-do spirit of just getting stuff done, of what Francis Bacon called, you know, the relief of man's estate, of improving people's lives, of, you know, the importance of, you know, capitalism, the Constitution, whatever. Um, it, 
none of that was present. It was just wallowing in self-pity nonsense. And it really infuriated me. So anyway, I figured I'd get that out there. Um, but since I mentioned Rawls, I should probably and you know, get back to, I said I was going to say what it bothered me about him. So one of my um, abiding problems with whatever you want to, whatever labels you want, progressivism, leftism, statism. Um, I think we get, as I said last week, kind of a little too bogged down in the label part about some of these things, given what the underlying psychological impulses are that lead to these kinds of ideologies and these kinds of movements. Um, but one of my abiding, you know, shorthand explanations about what's wrong with it is that, um, the state basically takes the place of God. The government should do the things that God should do if God existed, in effect. Um, that, you know, politics is kind of a church, and the state is there to right all wrongs, fix all problems, bring about the unity of all good things. And, um, you know, the Catholic Church, when it condemned uh, socialism and fascism in one of its encyclicals, called it statolatry. Um, it's very similar to the argument that um, uh, um, Kevin Williamson was making um, about presidents sort of becoming false icons, right? And, um, or false gods, in effect. And uh, the ideologies and the dogmas and the doctrines, they change from place to place but it is a remarkably unifying way of thinking about things. As the state in this Hegelian fashion is there to rectify all contradictions in life and blah, 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 blah. I come from the school of thought, the Burkean school of thought. I can't remember if I talked about the garden last week, which says in Yuval Levin's fantastic book, The Great Debate, which I think I reviewed for commentary. Um, uh, I think he talks about it in there. If not, he talks about it when he talks about the book. There are these two conceptions, and I certainly have talked about it a lot. Um, there are these sort of two conceptions that come out of the Enlightenment about the role of the state. One of them is uh, sort of metaphorically represented by uh, the gardens in Versailles in France. And if you've, you've seen these kinds of pictures, they still have these kinds of gardens. Um, they are these, you know, really stark geometric shapes with pyramids and cubes and rectangles and ovals where they, they bend the, the shrubbery. Well, what is it you want? We want a shrubbery. Uh, they bend the shrubbery to uh, conform with these hyper-rational conceptions of space. Um, it's all very geometric and pristine. Um, and that's contrasted by, um, the sort of Burkean view. Uh, and I, oh, I think Hayek actually talks about this in his Nobel prize, um, address. Maybe that's where it originally comes from. Anyway, the Burkean garden is, um, very different where in the British, the English garden, I should say in English gardens, they're bucolic, right? They're, they're, they're sort of like gardens in the Shire in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, um, which would make a lot of sense because Tolkien was very much this kind of Englishman where everything in the garden was supposed to look 
like the per perfect version of itself, right? The carrot bush or the radish bush or the apple tree was supposed to look like a postcard version of what they should look like. And the job of the gardener, in this case, the state, um, in the English garden is to create a kind of zone of freedom for the inhabitants of the garden to flourish and be the best versions of themselves in accordance with their own natures. And so you, you know, the gardener watches out for poachers and uh, thieves and, you know, rabbits or whatever, but um, basically guides things along to fulfill their own image and to fulfill their own flourishing destiny or whatever poetry you want to put to it. And in the, the, the French version of the Enlightenment, because remember, there are lots of different kinds of Enlightenments, contra Steven Pinker, it is to impose reason from above, to get everything to conform. And this is the point that Yuval makes, is that the metaphors that sort of help you understand the differences between these two kinds of Enlightenment thinking are um, that the, the left thinks of movement and the right tends to think of space. Right. The the role of the state in the conservative conception of things is to create this safe space for society to to evolve according to its own nature and its own rules and its own desires. Right. The zone of liberty and the the French Enlightenment tradition, which feeds, I would argue, into Bolshevism and all sorts of other things, is to guide humanity towards a single destination, right? That's sort of the, that's what Marx gets from, uh, enlightenment thinking is this sort of science of politics that says everybody has to be pulling in the same direction, this sort of, you know, Hegelian unfolding of what we're supposed to look like at the end of history. And when you think of it in those terms, it makes sense that the state should replace God as the driver of human history and human destiny, because there is this assumption that there's a destination to get to, and it's the state that is going to get us there. And so, you know, for the Soviets, it was the avant-garde um, of the party and all, or the proletariat or all that nonsense. And it's these experts. And for the progressives, people like Richard Elley and um, all the whole Wisconsin school crowd, uh, it was the technocrats and the economists who were going to guide society for collective redemption so that we were all going to sort of fulfill ourselves together. And there are all these great quotes from these guys back then from the progressives about how um, salvation is not an in individual thing. It's not about a person, an individual person finding, you know, uh, faith. It has to be society-wide society -wide and basically imposed from above. And so that gets me to my problem with Rawls. Sorry for, for meandering. The problem with Rawls is, is that, you know, as a mental exercise, it's, well, the two problems with Rawls. First, as a mental exercise, it's great. You know, it's a really, like the Feynman hypothesis thing, it's a really interesting way to think about politics. And it's a really interesting way to think about, you know, justice. I, I don't like the term social justice. Um, but, uh, for reasons that which actually be a pretty good one of these podcasts that do a big deep dive on social justice. Although I guess you could watch my Prager university thing on that. Um, but anyway, um, but justice is a thing and a just society is a thing. 
um, even though I don't believe in something like social justice. Um, it's sort of like I believe in what some people mean by social justice, but I think the concept is deeply, deeply flawed for reasons that Hayek gets into. But anyway, um, the, the point I'm getting at is that what Rawls is doing is he's making himself God, in effect, right? He is basically saying that your brain can get outside of society as it is. It can get, it can see all the invisible sinews and muscles and, and uh, nerves that sort of work through tradition and, and, and in invisible ways that guide us and that you can be, in effect, omniscient, right? You can see it all. And because you can see it all, you can then redesign it from scratch without consultation to other human beings or without taking into account how human beings might want to actually live. And it's a very classically technocratic way, gussied up in a lot of philosophic jargon, um, for seeing the world. I'm reminded there's a great little possibly apocryphal story in uh, Kevin Williamson's book, uh, which I always script the title, even though I loved it so much, The End is Near and It's Going to Be Awesome, or It's the End of the World and It's Going to Be Awesome, where he talks about how when, again, it could be an apocryphal story, but it's, it's, it's a good one. Uh, when Eisenhower was president of Columbia University, there was a big argument on campus among different, you know, uh, administrators, you know, the engineers, the architects, the gardeners, whatever, about where to put some new footpath. And um, one group said, you got to put it here. Another group said, you have to put it there. And what Eisenhower said, allegedly, was, why don't we just wait a year and see what route the students take? And when they groove out, a, when they sort of wear out a path in the grass, that's where we'll put the path. Right. That's the non that is the Burkean way to think about things is to put some trust and faith that human beings will um, come up organically and naturally with solutions to their problems. And then the role of the state is to improve upon some of those things or at least to take those things into account. This is very much it's very relevant to the, the conversation about the pandemic. Right. I mean, this is sort of part of Lyman's argument is that if you give people information, they will change their behavior on their own. And then you can look and see how you can improve it more rather than just imposing from above what your, the, you know, your pure reason thinks is the best approach. Now, obviously, in an epidemic, there's some things that the state should do and all the rest. But I think it's a good, again, it's a good mental exercise to keep in mind. And so my problem with the, my first problem with the veil of ignorance stuff um, which I think sometimes is called what, like the original position, is um, that it takes as an assumption that this exercise will teach you more than it actually does, that it will illuminate all the unknown unknowns in the way that, you know, God has no unknown unknowns. He's all-knowing. And the state can't have that. The human mind can't have that. No expert can know everything. Um... And you don't need me here to ramble on about the knowledge problem again. So that's my first problem. My second problem with Rawls is that, um, uh, and I remember writing about this when the Hermit Gosnell scandal broke. He was the legitimately evil abortionist. Um, 
if you think that the veil of ignorance is actually an important way of thinking about things, um, you kind of get into a huge problem if you're still pro-choice. And, or at least you don't deal with your support for abortion rights. And this is a criticism a lot of people have made about Rawls is that the logic of this mental exercise that he so famously championed leads you to essentially a pro-life position, right? Because what you're saying is, imagine you're a soul waiting in limbo for a body and that your soul, the whole premise of the exercise is that your soul has innate dignity regardless of what body you end up in, right? That's the, that's the idea is that whether you are appear as a black female or a white male or an Asian this or whatever, gay, straight, rich, poor, you have an innate human dignity from the get-go. Well, if that's the case, then when you actually enter a body, the first thing you would want before maybe hoping that you're born rich or born healthy or born white or whatever you might want to be born is that you be born, right? That you actually are allowed to be born. And the whole fundamental premise of, of, of abortion is, is that someone else gets to decide arbitrarily, and I don't mean arbitrarily as if it's trivial or anything like that, but it is by definition of what arbitrary decisions mean, arbitrary, it's based on one person's own personal desires and predilections. It's not, you know, necessarily grounded in any grand philosophical theory, except that choice is a good in and of itself, regardless of what you choose and all that kind of stuff. Um, um, you're arbitrarily deciding that this person doesn't get to be born because they're inconvenient um, to your desires and whatnot. And um, I'm not saying that you can't come up with an, a persuasive or a compelling or reasonable, at least to some people, response to the implications of abortion um, to the, the, you know, the veil of ignorance, Rawlsian argument. But he didn't. He just basically said, when it comes to abortion, never mind. And um, I sometimes wish that more pro-lifers would use this kind of philosophical reasoning to make their argument. I mean, this is one of the reasons, you know, to the extent that I consider myself a pro-lifer, it's because I do not believe the state should be in the position of deciding who does and does not count as a human being. And that becomes very compelling and profound for me the second a fetus is viable outside of the womb, you know, which is why I think late-term abortions of healthy babies are, are morally abhorrent. Um, and I just get squishier the earlier in the process go, but I find the logic very compelling. And it's one of the reasons why I don't, because I am a little torn on this stuff, I don't go nuts about this issue, except when it comes to things like late-term abortion or partial birth abortion or infanticide and that kind of stuff, because there I find it just so obviously compelling and true um, that I feel comfortable arguing about it. Um, I'm just less, you know, and maybe it's just I'm making a naturalistic sort of fallacy kind of thing. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm more torn about it when it comes to an egg seconds after fertilization 
even though friends of mine like Ramesh Panuru make good scientific arguments for why I should be equally compelled there. But that's that's my hang up, my inconsistency. I will continue to work through it. Um, so, oh, so last thing, I wrote my column today. Uh, maybe you saw on Twitter, but um, my column no longer will appear at National Review, which I'm kind of, you know, bittersweet about. Uh, I don't shouldn't say bittersweet because there's not a lot of sweetness to it. Um, I understand the decision. They wanted to get rid of, um, they want to do fewer syndicated columns. They want to have more original content. That's a perfectly legitimate sort of business decision. And, um, um, you know, I guess I would have preferred they made a different decision, but it's not a big deal. I'm not mad at Rich or any of those guys. Um, but it is sort of a, melan- a little melancholy thing that I appeared in there regularly for 22 years. And now I am, you know, just, I'm still, I still consider myself a member of the family, but there's less, much less public-facing evidence of it. So anyway, you can find my column from Friday uh, at the Dispatch and in a lot of other newspapers and outlets, um, but it's always good to come to the Dispatch. And I wrote about, you know, it, it, it dawned on me, and I don't know that other people think this is as profound or as interesting as I do, but that's okay. Um, for my entire, basically my entire life, right? I was born in 1969. I think if the, if the moon landing was in, I think it was in July. So three months before the moon landing, right? Um, and in that time, there has never been an event that I was an actual participant in that was sort of a society defining milestone, you know, um, like most Americans, the over, overwhelming majority of Americans, I um, experienced most of these things through the media, through TV, through newspapers or whatever. I have some personal experiences about 9-11. I had family in New York. I was in an interesting place. But, you know, like when a famous person dies or is killed or there's a mass shooting or we put a man on the moon or, or we, even when we go to war, most people, you know, when you ask people about it, you ask, where were you when? Where were you when you found out Reagan was shot? Or where were you when when you found out Kennedy was shot? Or where were you when we landed on the moon? And usually the story is about how you were watching TV with your parents or your friends or your children or whatever. And, you know, less than 1% of Americans are in the military. A tiny fraction of those people actually see combat. We haven't, most people don't go to war. Uh, most people don't serve. And so you really have to go back to World War II or the Great Depression or the First World War to come up, or the Spanish flu, to come up with something where the question isn't where were you when, but what did you do or how did it affect you or what happened to you? And this is the first event in my life that is like that. We all have our own stories about this pandemic and we're going to get more, um, you know, and I, I think that a lot of people who are trying to guess the politics of this moment and they're doing a lot of straight line projections out into the future. Um, and I think that's a bad idea. I think that's usually a bad idea, but it's a particularly bad idea now. As I point out in the column, you know, uh, a little over a week ago, 70, I think it was 70 percent of Americans said they didn't know anybody who had um 
had been diagnosed with COVID-19. A week later, according to the same poll, um, that number was below, it was 59%, just below 60. Um, and I think a lot of the protest stuff that we're seeing around the country is because there are a lot of people, wh whether they're right or wrong or, you know, anything in between, um, who are still experiencing this largely as an event on television. You know, if you don't know anybody who has COVID and you, your only really experience with the reality of this is the economic stuff, it's much easier to see why you would think this is a media-created thing or even a conspiracy, that this is an overreaction, that it's hype, because it's not affecting you in a real way. It is very possible that, you know, in, in no time at all, I'm not saying that everybody in America will know somebody who died from this, but it, pretty soon, the vast majority of Americans will probably know someone who got it, or at least it's likely that that's the case. Certainly by, you know, the fall, if we see the kind of spikes that we're talking about. And then it becomes much more real. Then maybe a lot of the people who think it's entertaining or forgivable or not a big deal that Trump is freelancing these bizarre medical cures and all the rest will be kind of pissed off because... Maybe their parents are dying from this, or maybe their friends are really sick from this. Um, um, my only point is that a lot of stuff is going to change. And, you know, the example I use in the column is immigration. I also talked about this on the Dispatch podcast. You know, I think a lot of the sort of standard positions and arguments on immigration are going to profoundly change because of all of this. You know, talking about jobs Americans won't do takes on a whole different and really obnoxious flavor when you've got tens of millions of people who lost their jobs. Um, you know, I'm still, I, I think turning off immigration um, will have negative economic consequences for the United States of America. I honestly believe that. I think that the, ar the economic arguments for immigration um, are better than, you know, a lot of critics of immigration think. But you know, that's changed a little bit with the rise of automation and all that. So, I mean, I, I stipulate that it's a complicated issue. But um, um, the political willingness of large numbers of people who were essentially pro-immigration uh, to change their minds is just going to be huge, particularly when you think about the fact that big chunks of the underdeveloped parts of the world are going to have a harder time dealing with this pandemic until the United States of America or somebody else comes up with a vaccine. And even then it's going to take a little while. And so the idea of importing workers who might be infected from these places, it's just, whether it's right or wrong, that's not my point. It's just the conversation about immigration is going to change really dramatically. And I don't think people are prepared for that. And I think that's true about a whole host of things. Um, you know, I've been arguing for a while now that I think the parties are overdue for a fundamental transformation. I don't know if they're going to, you know, I still think they'll probably be called Republican and Democratic, but the, the coalitions that make them up, I think, you know, they're already changing dramatically. We're seeing white college-educated suburbanites becoming Democrats or Democrat-leaning independents in large numbers. We've been seeing the white working class, which was the heart of the FDR coalition that sustained the Democrats through the 90s, moving in ever more... Uh, rapid numbers into the Republican fold. That is going to make the Republican Party a different party than the one I grew up with. And it's going to make the Democratic Party different than the one that I grew up with. And 
Then you add in what could be a depression. I think it probably will be a depression, um, as well as this pandemic and more Americans dying than died in the Vietnam War, died in both Iraq wars. Uh, And we could just see politics changing and the culture changing in in profound and unpredictable ways. And and that's why I'm kind of... you know, it, it makes it very difficult to do punditry. Um, for, you know, there are a bunch of reasons why it's hard to do punditry these days. But, you know, the, the the presidential race is sort of stifled under a wet blanket. Um, Trump sucks up so much oxygen. You know, people are tired of hearing about Trump. And, you know, the pandemic kind of crowds out everything else. But another reason why I think it's hard to do punditry is that with the exception of... Uh, China becoming a kind of galvanizing uh, international rival in ways that it hasn't been. There are very few things that I'm confident about predicting about the future because I just think things are going to change a lot. Um, I should say one last thing about when I said I think we're going to have a depression. It's worth remembering, and I know we wanted to do some history stuff, but I'll do that another time, um, except to say that the... America had lots of depressions in its past. Um, they were actually pretty frequent. It's one of the reasons why we created the Fed to get rid of some of that volatil- volatility. There was a lot of boom and bust in our economy for a very long time. And, um, but most people, when they hear depression, the only thing they think of is the Great Depression. And the Great Depression lasted a very long time. Most of the previous depressions were, I mean, I don't, don't hold me to this. I'm sure there were some longer ones, but I'm pretty sure they were like a year to 18 months, maybe two years at most. They weren't these long protracted things the way the Great Depression was. And when we get around to doing our New Deal stuff, I'll talk about why there are some of us who believe that, you know, the Depression um, happened on Hoover's watch, to be sure. And all that, and there are reasons for it, and whatever, but it was really the New Deal that made the Great Depression great um, and long-lasting. And the one thing that are fighting words with me, sort of intellectually, are when people say the New Deal ended the Great Depression. Even Paul Krugman doesn't say that. He's very slippery about it, but he didn't. It didn't. No, I'm not aware of any serious economist who thinks we got out of the Depression because of the, of the, the New Deal, we got out of it because of World War II and really the boom that came after World War II. And Krugman gets clever by saying, well, World War II really was an extension of the New Deal, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, um, the New Deal um, didn't lift people out of the Great Depression. That came later. And one reason why I think that's relevant is simply to say that um, it's worth remembering that when we start having this post-pandemic argument about what, how we're going to do things, that's, what, that's part of the point I was getting at with how we should talk about sort of a Marshall Plan and not a New Deal. Because a Marshall Plan is geared towards goosing an economic boom and recovery. And a New Deal is much more about minis- minimizing the suffering of a basically endemic, long-lasting depression. And that's not the way that we want to go. Anyway, on that cheery note, I guess I'm done. Um, I got, I still got a bunch of stuff to do. It's been kind of a crazy day and I'm exhausted. Um, but if you, uh, 
can sign if you haven't signed up for the G file, please do. If you, oh, one last thing. Um, I know people are. I, I hear this from a lot of people that, and it's happening to me too. Podcasts are really piling up for people because they're not in their cars as much. They're not going to gym. They're not doing the things where they listen to podcasts. I did two podcasts that I really enjoyed this week. The first with my friend Vin Canato, where we covered a whole bunch of different territory. Um, and the second with Matt Ridley, who I'm a kind of a super fan of. And we talked about a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Some of it sort of related to the stuff we're talking about here. Um, please check them out. I thought they were great. Um, and, you know, beyond that, please sign up for the dispatch. Uh, I'm going to do that glop ricochet dispatch crossover thing on Sunday. Um, there's some huge logistical issues I'm going to have to deal with to get it, to, to be able to do it, but I'll tell you about that later. Um, the last one was super popular. It was a lot of fun. Um, you're, if you're a paid member, you're going to get an email about this, or if you're a paid subscriber to the G file, you're going to get an email about this with a link and all the him and the ha and the who. Um, so please sign up. And if you're not signed up, sign up and you sign up for the G file and you'll, you'll get the link. So uh, with that, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Nick, you can cut that part out. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.